to Ephesians chapter 5. study the book of Ephesians in a few Sundays. It used to be six Sundays, now it's a few Sundays. As I've said, Ephesians is a book that I would love and will eventually teach through over the course of more than a year. And Ephesians is also a book that you need to be able to summarize like that. So let's read ourselves into the context of the great command of Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine for that anticipation, but be filled by the Spirit. Let's read ourselves into the context and help me out, beloved, help me out. How can we summarize Ephesians for somebody that has never read it or for ourselves when we haven't read it in a while? How can you get hold of this magnum opus, this pinnacle of Paul's deposit of special revelation? How can you summarize the book of Ephesians? And let's, let's make it two easy steps. Maybe we could divide it into two boxes. Can you do it? You can do it, can't you? Let me guess. If Ephesians is six chapters, let's make it break, since Paul does, between chapters one through three and chapters four through six. Everybody with me on this? We've got to read the context for me to get you to the awesome command. Because what you really want to do with Ephesians is do a summary message on it over the process of like six to 12 hours. And then we all thought it the same together all at once. And it got as much content as we could manage. And then we all needed to take a rest. Eutychus. Remember Eutychus? Fell out the third floor window. Died. Paul revived him, Elijah and Elisha style. And then went back to preaching. Until dawn. Because, I mean, they figure everyone had awakened. We got more time now. Uh, Nothing like a, a death and resuscitation to wake everybody up. A little trauma, a little drama, back to the Bible. Now, Ephesians breaks into two pieces, and it is all about the church, the body of Christ. I mean, the universal church. All those who are in Christ by the baptism of the Spirit from the moment when we first believe in Jesus Christ. And this project of building the church began in uh, AD 33, the way I understand the chronology to work, AD 33, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came according to God's promise. 10 days after Jesus left, after he ascended, the Holy Spirit descended. And Jesus had told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Father. And that indwelling work of the Spirit, that also baptizing ministry of the Spirit, began on that day. And it did not exist before. And I really want you to read and read your Bible and read it some more and read it again. And don't hear me say the Holy Spirit wasn't working in men before. Hear me say that this ministry of baptism and indwelling for all believers began in 33 AD and had not existed before. It was a new work of the Spirit of God. There were people in the Old Testament, a few, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Some had, uh, had power to raise an army like Saul. Some had the power to have massive strength like Samson. Some had really uh, great skill to build Um, items that God had assigned Moses, uh, like the Ark of the Covenant and the the tabernacle. And this is stated to be the Spirit of God working in these people. But, but, what started happening on AD 33 was the promise of the Father that Jesus said a new helper, another helper would come to take up the work that he had been doing among his disciples. 
and that is this new work called the indwelling, baptism, and filling of the Holy Spirit. The church age ministry that makes us different. It's the privileges that we have today. And by the way, theologically, this doctrine of the church, once you get hold of it, once you understand what's going on, that this is new work with new commands, with a new responsibility that builds on what had been given in the Old Testament, but it's this new distinction that God is making called the Jew and Gentile of one body called the church built by the Holy Spirit. When you begin to understand this distinction, you start to say, oh, there is different works that God is doing through history. We're in something new that wasn't offered before. God has different methods and content of revelation through the generations of his project of history. And it is because of the doctrine of the church that an Irishman, a faithful pastor, born in 1800 and died in 1882, I think that's right, said, wait a second, the church is different project of God in the scriptures than what God is doing with Israel. And the future promises that are forever in the Old Testament to Israel have not been rescinded or replaced. And that, John Nelson Darby, the first person to kind of systematize what we call dispensationalism did it because of the doctrine of the church if we have something new and something distinct in what sense is it new in what sense is this, is it distinct and it it's it's a little bit different than um, for example what the puritans and uh, the congregationalists had as the new covenant replacing the old mosaic covenant which we have in hebrews but they'd said we now are the new israel the church is israel and so you've you've got a, a different project and so no future israel and the bible turns out to be more complicated than that and so what you're learning in ephesians is the doctrine of the church the body of christ the people who are united by the baptism of the spirit to jesus christ and it never existed before AD 33. And we read in uh, John chapter 7, the Holy Spirit wasn't yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. And this is the project we're studying about. So when you hear Ephesians and you have your favorite verses, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, for he is, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I mean, when you have your favorite Ephesians, um, therefore, as beloved children, therefore imitate God, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you uh, as a, to God as a fragrant aroma. When, when you read the favorite verses, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. You have to understand it's in a context where Paul is presenting the doctrine of the church. That's the whole theological theme. And chapters one through three help establish that with the privileges that we have as the church, the privileges of those who are in Christ. He doesn't mean those who really get it as those in Christ and are really maturing and serving and growing and doing all that they're supposed to be doing. He's talking about those who are in Christ, those who are positionally united to Jesus Christ by the baptism of the spirit. And that's why all the commands, all the commands are given because you who are in Christ are supposed to abide in Christ. You're supposed to walk worthy of your calling in Ephesians 4.1. You see, that, see, there's a position in Christ and then there's abiding in Christ. And Paul is teaching the church in Ephesus and really Asia Minor. I believe this letter circulated around the churches. 
This, this is Paul teaching them, because of your position and privileges, this is how you live. So Ephesians 1 through 3, position and privileges of the church. Ephesians 4 through 6, practices, responsibilities of the church. As a dispensationalist, as somebody that believes in the distinction between Israel and the church, first discovering the doctrine of the church, and then faithfully reading the Old Testament and saying the God who promised and said, on my life, I swear, he's not going to rescind his promises. Who's read Romans 9 through 11 and the promise for future salvation of Israel. As someone who believes in the future of Israel and the distinction between Israel and the church. And we see the resolution of that question in the coming kingdom, Jesus and his body, his bride, ruling over Israel, over the nations. That's the destiny of planet Earth. When you start to understand this, you have to, uh, you have to say um, the details matter. My project of reading Paul fast and summarizing his letters is a counter to that idea of focusing on details. I know it is. But let's understand God's priority for the church and as I was going to say, as a dispensationalist, I have been taught and have heard that we're under the, the grace of God and therefore not under the law. Because Paul says we're not under uh, the law, we're under grace. Because Paul is describing, he's describing administrations. This is the administration of grace and that was the administration of law, Mosaic law. But make no mistake, we are not antinomian. We are not autonomous without law, without with self-law. We are under the law of Christ. It's a new arrangement, a new commandment. I give you that you love one another as I loved you. And when you start hearing Christians say, ah, you're violating some, some important distinctions. When you start telling Christians they have commandments that they're responsible to fulfill, you're going to start hearing bad theology overcoming the actual teaching of the scripture. Hear what I'm saying. I'm stumbling around this, but listen to what I'm saying. The idea that we don't have commandments because we're under grace and Israel had commandments because they're under law is really, really ignorant, bad theology that hasn't done exegesis of the text of the scriptures. And one of the things I've been doing is showing you Jesus gave command after command after command in the upper room discourse and his teaching his disciples for what would come when the Holy Spirit came. What abide in me is a command. If you do what I command to love one another, which is a command, then I will make my abode with you in John 14, 21 and 23. Lots of commands, but they require the power of God living in you to accomplish, to love to the standard of Christ. That's the Holy Spirit working in you. So I heard a lot that we're not really worried so much about obedience of commands as believing, as trusting in God and receiving his grace. And that becomes... Listen, for the believer in Jesus Christ who is saved by grace through faith, that can become a false dichotomy. That can become a, 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 a way to derail you from doing the word. Everyone wants to throw James up in, in their theological reasoning. James tells you to do the word. Whatever it tells you, you need to actually do it. And where you fall short, you need to own it with your father if we confess our sins in 1 John. So what I'm saying is we've really emphasized the commands and we're at one of my very favorite commands in the New Testament. One of the great um, practices that we have is also a privilege 
as we read in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18, the filling of the Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine. That's a command. The only way to respond to that command is to believe God is telling you this because it's from the Apostle Paul and therefore believe you're responsible to obey it and then to choose in faith to obey what it says. That does not mean that you're being a legalist by keeping God's commands. And you're not doing it in the energy of the flesh. It's in the, as we'll read, it's going to be in the power. All that pleases God is in the power of the Spirit. Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you, for without me you can do nothing. You'll, I mean, you're belt, you're, you'll bear much fruit in John 15, 5. Without me you can do nothing. I believe it's always empowered by God. It's always the grace works of God through us. Is God working in us both to want and to do what pleases him in Philippians chapter 2. But understand, Christians, we must obey our Savior. Now, if I teach you not only what he said, but to obey what he said, what will I be doing? Anybody? If I teach you to obey what the Lord Jesus Christ has said through his apostles, we have nothing written from him. It's all written by his apostles and those under them. If I teach you to obey all that Jesus commanded, what will I be doing? I'm sorry? I will be on, the, on, on mission. I will be carrying out what was instructed of Jesus. Jesus gave his disciples to do. You could say, wait a second, Rosalind. You are not one of the 12. And that is a great observation. Congratulations. I am not one of the 12. So what am I? If you watch Matthew 28 pretty closely, just listen to it. He's speaking to the 11 remaining disciples. And he tells them to go and make disciples. So am I one of the 12? No. But am I one who's been taught by one who's been taught by one who's been taught by them? It's a chain. It's a replication. See what happens in Satan's counterfeit is we get this idea of apostolic succession. And that means that you've got somebody on a throne somewhere. Who's the next, next guy speaking from the, from the chair. No, no, that's, that's not what the succession is. The Great Commission is that disciples make disciples. So are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? That means a student, one under him. Well, if you are baptized in obedience as a believer, if you are teaching others to keep what he's commanded, yes. So what do disciples do in Matthew 28? They make more disciples. Welcome to Preston City Bible Church. That's the only reason for this thing to exist. We thought it was something that we would do on a Sunday. Right? I, and again, Christian life of Paul. Paul is fulfilling the Great Commission. And he is equipping us to fulfill the Great Commission. And as much as you are in my life, encouraging me along this road, and I'm in your life, encouraging you along this road, we are fulfilling this instruction to keep all that he commanded. And so... Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation or waste. By the way, red doesn't mean letters of Christ or words of Christ. I know your Bible might be red letter. That can be helpful and it can also be distracting because every word of scripture is God breathed. But the reason my letters are red is because I'm highlighting commands. It's not up there. And red, do not be drunk with wine. I used red because of the wine. And if we were to do white wine, then you couldn't see the letters. So red wine. 
Do not be drunk with wine, in which is a waste. And we said this pulls out of uh, verses 15, 14 through um, sorry, 15 through 17, about making the most of the time. And so you violate that command of, uh, of not being foolish, or, but rather being wise and making most of your time because the days are evil and understanding the will of God. All those commands go right here. Don't be drunk with wine and that influence, but rather be filled by the spirit. Now, here's what I mean by that. Imagine you are the vessel. You're the thing being filled because it's passive voice as you be filled. You, however the you is filled, it's you. We have this idea from this command that it means the Holy Spirit is, the, is like the wine that fills the vessel. That the Spirit is the wine because of the illustration. I don't think so. Being filled with wine or being drunk with wine is not so much about the physical media being in you. It's what it does to you in terms of its influence. The Holy Spirit is not fluid and he doesn't fill you up and then you have some sort of spiritual intoxication. Rather, he is the one doing, in my view, from what the Greek is saying, he is the one doing the filling. If there was a pitcher and you're the vessel, the one holding the pitcher and pouring would be the spirit. I believe that's what Paul is saying. Be filled by the spirit. Now, what we didn't say then is what's he filling you with? What is the medium that saturates you and so characterizes you with the things of God that you're a product of the spirit of God? The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things that the Holy Spirit produces in us. What makes for the filling that the Spirit is filling you with? What's the medium? And I believe... If you don't, if you're not familiar with this, write it down. Colossians 3.16, I think tells you the answer. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, command you, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Actually, literally, it's the word of Christ is to dwell richly within you. And the reason I think it's the same command in different aspects, the, the, whole, the one doing the filling is the spirit, the, the, the thing he fills you with is the word. The reason it's the same is the, the results are all the same in Colossians 3.17 and following and Ephesians 5.18 through 21. Be filled by the Spirit. This means the Holy Spirit is to have his influence, is to have his influence on you and me. With the result that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The result, not the cause, but the result of the filling of the Spirit will be how you address one another. Sometimes you'll find yourself in a conversation where you, a little shade will kind of pass across your consciousness. You'll say, yeah, I'm in a conversation I don't really think I'm supposed to be in. I believe that's your conscience and the Holy Spirit prompting you through your conscience, part of your original equipment, to say, I'm in a, an area I shouldn't be in. See, that, that's not the filling of the Spirit. That's not the result of the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you, that you would have a conversation you're not supposed to have. Rather, you're supposed to be edifying one another. You're walking Bibles. You're supposed to share in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in how you deal with one another. And I want to emphasize this. If I were writing the Bible, I would have said speaking to God in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but it doesn't say to God. He says on a horizontal basis, on a horizontal level, not me and God, vertical, but horizontally, how you address one another is now in view. 
but it's not just horizontal, with the result that you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. The inner person is so saturated with the scriptures that there's a song in your heart, and you're singing it in your heart to the Lord. And usually that word kurios, when Paul writes it by itself, is a reference to the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. With the result is you give thanks at all times for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. I believe this is a wonderful protocol for prayer, and I would challenge you to think as a Trinitarian when you pray. Dear Heavenly Father, in your Son's name we pray, amen. Giving thanks for, at all times for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, with the result that you submit one to another in the fear of Christ. Now you could look at these as commands in their effect that you're supposed to speak edifying words to one another. You're supposed to sing to the Lord. You're supposed to give thanks to the Father through the name of the Son at all times for all things. You're supposed to submit one to another in fear of Christ. But he doesn't do it as imperatives. He says the filling of the Spirit is commanded and these will be the necessary results. People are always looking in the Bible for a test and see how I'm doing. We're told to test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Well, this is a great example. How are you dealing with one another? How are you dealing with God? And I want you to also notice the sandwich. You see the bread and the meat in the sandwich in verses uh, 19, 20, 21? Look at, look at the first result, speak, and the last result, submit. And tell me what those two things have in common, those two commands. Verse 19, speak to one another. Verse 21, submit to one another. What do those two things have in, in common? What'd you say? One another, would that be vertical or horizontal? That's horizontal, right? What's the middle two? Singing, making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks to the Father at all times in the name of the Son. What's the middle, middle two about? It's to the Lord, it's vertical. You get it? Is Paul a Jew? Does he think like in terms of Hebrew scripture, is he an Old Testament-minded person who does this chiastic arrangements to all the time? We find it all over the place. Did you see this one before? That, that the results of the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, on the outside have how you treat one another, and on the inside, where it's focal, have how you relate to God. I mean, that is a beautiful package. And let me point out some continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We need to see the continuities. Jesus summarized the Mosaic law as love the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 6, 5. And love one another as uh, love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus uh, 19, 18. He said, that's the summary of the law. Can somebody tell me why in the Ten Commandments that summarizes the law? Why in the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20, restated in Deuteronomy, why is the summary of the law, love God and love your neighbor? With the Ten Commandments as a summary of the law, why, is it, why does this summarize it? Does anybody know and just don't, not want to say? Trying to open a file cabinet in your soul and your memory banks that you'll be able to fill with content and have forevermore. This was God's summary law for Israel. Love God and love your neighbor. Okay. Okay, sure. What about the specific commandments? Verse 4. 
That's somebody that's been through the chip from BE302. <laughs> what are the first four? They're, they're about the relationship with God. I mean, how so? You have no other God before me. No idols. So don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And the Sabbath. Holy to the Lord, right? Which I think goes hand in hand with taking the Lord's name in vain. We're God's people. He rested on day seven. We rest on day seven. That's what the Sabbath was. Now, what's the other six? How you treat people. Do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, do not bear false witness. The commandments go from how you treat God to how you treat people for God's sake. That's the Mosaic law. When, when people hear the law, and sometimes when you start with dispensationalism and then end with the Bible, we miss this. So start with the Bible and end with its product, dispensational theology. The law is to love God and love your neighbor. That was, that was what was to characterize Israel. And the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is teaching Israel what the law is, what it was, what they were supposed to be uh, prepared. They're supposed to know that they're dead and they need a savior from the law because people don't do this. Nobody has successfully done this. All right, that's what the law does. It kills you by saying you're a sinner and God's righteousness is not attainable by you. And so what I'm showing you here is Paul is echoing this same theme when he structures this way. Speak to one another, submit one to another. That's one another. That's horizontal, how you treat man. And then how you treat God. And what else is there? Where in your systematic theology of Christian sanctification, what other relationships are you responsible for? How you treat God and how you treat man. You can say, well, well uh, uh, we've got uh, uh, treating animals correctly. The Bible addresses that. It's not the focus of the Bible. It's nowhere near the focus of the Bible, but the Bible does address the proper care and feeding and eating of animals. It, it tells you what, what, what right looks like with that, and it's not cruelty, it's not abuse. It's stewardship. But it's not a major thing, and it, it, it tucks up under God made it. You honor what God made. What about... The way we relate to our planet. Well, this, this spherical spaceship that you're on, that is all the materials you need to, to survive, is a stewardship. But again, under God. But the real focus of the Bible is the relationships between you and God and you and man. And that, we need to prioritize that. We need to figure that out. What will happen to a, a, your theology of environmentalism if you go with that, that, that philosophy, that idea that God, it's God first, then man second, and then the other things for God's sake? You will make a distinction between humans and their environment and humans and animals, just like you make a distinction between God and nature, God and creation. You'll say this, humans are other, humans are... A higher order thing than anything else on planet earth and indeed to read genesis planet earth was made for humans so you'll prioritize human life let me go full circle uh, all the way up well not full circle but all the way up the chain in worldview to convictions and politics and so forth if you take man as god's pinnacle of earthly creation and that the other things under it under man are for the purpose and benefit of man if you take it that way 
then you could never do eugenics. Social Darwinism, the idea, the satanic idea that survival of the fittest um, among animals is now for humans and we have to get rid of the undesirables. And if you don't go for eugenics from the early 20th century, if you don't say we're going to try to abort the undesirable babies and promote the abortion of those deemed by the eugenicists undesirable, especially um, of African descent, then what will you never end up with in the 21st century? If you don't go for eugenics in the early 20th century, what do you not end up with in the, 20th, in the, in the 21st century? Anybody know? Planned Parenthood. You would never get from eugenics to this business built on Darwinism and the idea that humans are just animals, which had, along with Darwin and those that were following him, a racist inclination. You read the full title of Darwin's Origin of the Species. It has to do with further, further to favored races. If you, if you start with God made man in his image, and you value man and then see earth as a stewardship for man to, to minister, but for man's benefit because of the value of human life, then you would never end up with the abortion movement because you would honor human life and see it different from animals. This is the reason Christians that believe the Bible will say no to these things because we're saying not only do all black lives matter and not only do all lives of all people matter, but they matter because human beings are made in God's image and that's their value. That's what we would say. That's, that's the Christian view. And so those that hate that, that grit their teeth and say, ah, you're against everything I believe in such people that hate the speaker for saying human life is the priority the earth and the environment is in service to that priority as, a, as our worldview. Those that hate me for saying so, watch this. We love them as God's image bearer. We believe they have dignity and value even though they are rejecting their value and dignity. Even though they don't believe it, we believe it because of what they are. Now that, my friends, is a great apologetic for Christianity to a lost and dying world because as the people promoting anti-hatred speech and no hate speech, they hate what I'm saying and they will hate me for saying it because they do not have the spirit of God in them to produce the love of Jesus Christ on God's account for what God made and what God has sent his son to save. Sometimes we need a little bit of worldview reminder. We don't, we're not single issue voters. We're not, this isn't our main focus. We're focused on God and what he said. And so we just have a fundamental disagreement with all Darwinists about what a human being is. Vitally different. Even Darwin was uh, one created in God's image and Lyell who messed up geology before him. And there is a scientific answer. There is an observational science answer for the questions if we don't start with theological premises. How you speak to men, how you sing to God, how you give thanks to God, and how you have humility toward one another. This is the effect of you being filled by the Spirit with the Word of God, with the Word of Christ.
Now look in your Bible. In verse 22, in the majority of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament, you have the verb, wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the oldest manuscripts that we have, which are one, basically one family of manuscripts, there's no verb. It's just wives to your husband. So in my New American Standard, it has be subject in italics. But what we do is we read this in context. Verse 21 says, be subject, hupotasso, put yourself under, submit to one another in the fear of Christ or one to another, and then wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Everybody submits to one another. It's the question of how, in what sense, how do we submit one to another that he's talking about when he goes into what we call the household code. In Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 6, verse 9, we are going to see what the Holy Spirit will do to a household. A household, including a small business, including a business that's in a household like would have been in the first century in the Roman Empire. All the personal, interpersonal human relationships that are most are vital in a household are addressed. And therefore, the greatest troubles we have in life, the greatest pain and suffering that we've ever experienced comes from our connection to other people. And those things are addressed here by the Holy Spirit using this, what we call the household code. We've seen it in Colossians 3, and now we see it in Ephesians 5. And where do you find the household code? 522 through 69. The household code. The household is supposed to be characterized by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and all that comes from love. And Christian love, where you're selflessly concerned for the other person without regard to self. That's what selfless means. You're not looking at you, you're looking at the other person. That Christian love is going to have an effect on how husbands treat their wives for God's sake, how wives respond to their husbands for God's sake children and fathers and mothers, workers and foremen in our culture, slaves and masters in the first century in Rome. Every relationship and how you deal with the hardest part of life at times, which is authority, is under this power of God's word saturating you. This is one of the great portraits, one of the great portraits of the effect of the word of God in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ in this age. You Christians have hardships with the people closest to you. But when you zoom out from this, just me and this person thing, you zoom out to God and his purposes and his mission for you and for this other believer. When you zoom out and you include God in the conversation, the petty has a way of boiling off. I've been forgiven a billion. I can forgive a hundred. I can forgive a dime. I've been forgiven a billion. I, I have no stance here to hold this against someone. And we start applying biblical rationales to being Christians and how we deal with one another. And I believe that every one of you needs to revisit the household code. Every one of us needs to think through our work relationships, the deal with parents and children, which can be some of the most devastating, painful relationships, and the, and the deal with husbands and wives, the age-old battle, the war, the war between Adam and Eve, the war between man and woman, no matter how free you are, no matter how, girls, you had a chance to say no and you said yes anyway, and there you are, you're stuck. Guys, you've saddled yourself with this person for life, and you should never call her the old ball and chain 
Amen. You should never say that I'm stuck, but you should know you are because you've chosen this for yourself. Your parents didn't do it to you. In old cultures, they would, mom and dad would set this up, be a business deal. And that's the culture in which Paul's speaking. Your culture, you're free. You get to say, dad, I really don't want to do this. Dad's like, okay. Generally, and if you're not in that situation, you need to check out your constitution and stuff. But I'm just saying, um, this, this culture that you're in, you're under more responsibility for how you've married and who you've married and what you do about it than even in Paul's day. And uh, freedom has a way of um, being a, a, a level playing field for success or failure. And so what do you do with it? Well, you can be a success in the household code and all these relationships as we'll look at uh, next hour. I believe we have a... Um, we have a uh, congregational meeting uh, here during the break. Yeah, I know. And uh, we will visit uh, the Lord's table for first hour. I know I've said we do it this Sunday, but I'm not going to rush it. Mike, we're going to do the Lord's table first part of first hour next Sunday. And I made a choice when we started. I was going to pray with you instead of, uh, instead of take that time. So we, did, we took a long time in prayer. So we will get together for the Lord's table first hour next Sunday. And... Um, uh, apologize for the the disruption there. Um, Mike, for our meeting today, we are asking uh, about some two two matters, as far as I understand. We're asking for recommendations from the church family for uh, deacons, and uh, we're asking for. Um, the church to consider adding a missionary uh, support uh, outfit to our work, uh, Child, Evangelism Fel Child Evangelism Fellowship of Connecticut. That's what the meeting is about. It should be pretty quick. Um, but uh, let's close with a word of prayer. And um, I want to say, Mike, should we not say uh, kick off the meeting at 1030? Give everybody a few minutes to... Um... Let's... Let's, uh, let's give everyone a, a second to stretch their legs or head downstairs. It's hard with the bathroom thing because of the social distancing. So if you don't really need to, please don't go downstairs. But we'll, uh, we'll say 1030 and uh, do our quick little meeting. And then, um, and then we'll get to back together for, for the second hour. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fellowship we enjoy through your son, through his work on the cross, for the communion that is always our privilege because of the work of Jesus Christ and because of the power and presence of your spirit in us. Father, I pray that uh, you'd strengthen us to abide in him, to stay connected to the Lord Jesus Christ and focused on your mission. Let us be on mission and successful in it. Father, as the civilization around us continues to uh, reap the fruit, reap the, the, the harvest of unbelief, Father, we, we don't belong to it, but we're here to serve in it. And we ask you to strengthen us to it in Christ's name. Amen.